Well, in the providence of God, I have been given some big topics over the last few weeks. Chuck will continue with uh, some bigger topics next week as well. But in regards to some of these big topics, I want to start out with this quote. When we are perplexed, it is not a time to despair, but to worship and be reminded that we are not God. This is one of those topics that at times can perplex us. And when we are perplexed, we should be driven to worship and in awe of our creator, God. So let's ask his blessing on our time and ask for his wisdom tonight. God, we ask for your blessing tonight. Would you help us to behold beautiful things in your law tonight? Would you give us great wisdom as we look at this topic, your sovereignty and your plan? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we live in an age of filters, don't we? You can pretty much filter anything. This is my Instagram filter, playing around with some of these yesterday. <laughs> my wife, Mandy, showed me how to do those. Uh, those are pretty fun. But we live in a, in a world where filtering is a, is a big part. We know and we want to be perceived in a certain way or look at things in the way that we want to see them. We know how to hold a cell phone just right to take away our double chin when we're doing a selfie, right? The higher and the further away, the better you're going to look. I was sitting in a uh, coffee shop the other day behind a lady that was editing for hours family photos that she had just taken, getting everything just right, looking for that perfect photo to present that family in the perfect filtered way that everyone wanted to, to perceive them when they walked into the living room and saw their picture on the wall. Just every once in a while, I think it'd be more fun to post the pictures of like the in-between the shots when the kids are going crazy and they're screaming and yelling and crying. I think that would be more fun. But we do have a way of presenting our best selves through filters, how we want to be perceived and how we want to perceive the world and our lives around us. But do we ever have the tendency to filter God? Do we filter God? This is how I want to see God. I want God to line up with my views. The things that make sense to me in my life, I want God to fit into my filter and I want to view him in a certain way in the world that I live in. Well, God doesn't make it that easy. He is infinite and we are finite. As we sung tonight, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. I mean, you can barely figure out your own friendships, your own spouse, let alone trying to figure out who God is. And anytime we try to figure out God and put him on our own level, we are into very dangerous ground. And let me just say, anytime you try to figure God out and to fit him into where you want to fit him, that's where heresies abound. Whenever we try to say, I want God to be a certain way, that's when we enter into the realm of heresy. J.D. Greer says this, he says, we tend to see God with universe-sized muscles, but a tiny head. 
You know, you think about God, huge muscle, able to accomplish anything, but when it comes to his ways or his thoughts, we tend to question them and think that we can do them just a little bit better than he can, or somehow we could advise him and give him advice in this life of how he should see things. We sometimes have the tendency to see God as a slightly smarter, more intelligent version of ourselves, right? God, I, he's pretty much like me, just a little bit smarter, and he's a little more intelligent version of me. Greer also says this, most Christians have not rejected God, they have reduced him. God is so far beyond us, not just in power, but in his exhaustive knowledge. So as we dive in tonight, we explore his sovereignty. Let's define some terms first, introduce you to some key players in the sovereignty talks as we get into tonight's talk from God's word. Well, God's sovereignty, that, mean is, that means God's rule and authority in the world. Often if you think of a king, they call them a sovereign. That means that their rule extends through their kingdom. So God's sovereignty is his rule over creation. But we're going to be talking about tonight more along the lines of God's providence. And often we see providence as we see something in the future. We see something in advance and we know how things are going to work out. And that's often how people, when they approach God, is they think this is how God is sovereign. He sees the world that he lives in, he looks down and sees all the choices that man is going to make, and he knows the future. Well, that's only half of God's providence. Providence comes from the word provide. Do you hear it in there? So when we talk about providence, it's not just that God knows what is going to happen, but God is going to provide what is needed for something to come about. So he's going to bring and bring the provision of what it takes to bring about his plan. It's like if you say to someone and that someone says to you, hey, can you do this project for me? And you say, I'll see to it. Does that mean that you are just going, you know how it's going to end, or you are going to bring that into completion. You are going to be the one that brings it about. To say that you are going to see, to see to something is to say, I'm going to make sure that that comes about, and I'm going to provide whatever is necessary to bring about the task that I have been given. So John Piper, per, perhaps just to simply put it this way, says providence is God's providing, sustaining, and governing the universe. So God is not a God who has left the world to run its own course after creating it, but he is actively involved with a plan for the world, with a plan for your life, a plan for the universe. He brings all things about. He knows and directs all things, and he is intimately involved. Well, there's two people that we need to know when we talk about sovereignty, and there'll be more later on in this discussion. It doesn't start with these two guys. Really, you can go back to Augustine and Pelagius, but these are two names you'll need to know. The first one is John Calvin. Now, John Calvin, you see, was born and uh, died several years ago, but he is a, a big player when it comes to the areas of sovereignty. The other one is Joseph Arminius. 
Maybe you've heard someone come up to you and say before, are you a Calvinist? Are you an Arminian? And you're like, say what? What exactly does that mean? Well, I thought that when you, when you go to Bible college, you kind of get into this realm of you just think that everyone knows what Calvinism means. Everyone knows what it means to be an Arminian. And I was counseling at a camp during uh, my summer in between my junior and senior year of college. And I had a kid in my cabin who came from a Christian home. And I said to him, your name is Calvin? He's like, yes, it is. I said, that is so cool. Did your dad name you after John Calvin? And he said, I don't know who John Calvin is. My dad named me after Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> so it's okay if you don't know exactly who Calvin and Arminius is, but see if you, you, maybe you've been asked this question before and you knew how you answered it, or maybe it was kind of up there in the air and you, maybe you're newer and you have no idea what this question even means to be a Calvinist or to be an Arminian. Well, when someone is asking you that question, they're really asking you, what is your view of sovereignty from the Bible? And usually when they ask you about if you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, it's usually in regards to God's election and salvation. Some things that you need to know about these two guys. Doesn't Calvin look like he's just like staring down Arminius right there? Man, it just looks like, dude, you are messing with my teaching and I don't like it. But what you need to know is that you notice the dates that they actually lived. Now, some of us think that there were great debates between these two guys, right? But actually, when John Calvin died, Arminius was only four years old. So they were not contemporaries. They did not have debates. And they probably, and I know that they never had a conversation. But Calvin taught that God is sovereign. And that not only does he know the future, but he ordains the future. God brings the future about through his sovereign plan. He also taught that man is incapable, that is, he's unable to, after the fall of man, when sin entered the world, to seek God on his own and choose his own good. So Arminius studied Calvin. He was a student of Calvin's teaching. And after some time went by, he had some disagreements about this. And he saw God, God's sovereignty more as foreknowledge, in the sense that this is what Arminius believed that God looks down the corridors of time and he sees and knows what will happen. So he doesn't ordain things, he doesn't bring things about, but he looks and sees the decisions that man's made, making. And in that way, he is sovereign. And he wrote five points against Calvinism and the conclusions that he came up with. Now, Calvin was dead when Arminius wrote his five points. So Calvin's students ended up writing five points of Calvinism in response to Arminius. So when someone comes up to you and says, hey, how many points uh, Calvinist are you? Just say, Calvin didn't even know that there was five points, so I don't have to address that question. They came across after he was already dead. Now stick with me. Some of you are like, wow, I should have stayed home on this nice night tonight. <laughs> All right, we're going to get into some practical stuff, okay? Just putting this out there. So they agreed that God knows the future. Both of them agreed that. But where they differ is how the future came about. Calvin believing that God sovereignly ordained it, and Arminius believing that God knows the future because he can see everything. And many God-fearing people disagree on this. 
And while we think one is correct, you could still be a God-fearing, loving believer and hold to either one of these positions while we do think one of them is wrong. (laughs) We believe and we hold to the position when we clearly read the Bible, the best that we can without a filter and not saying that we aren't guilty of putting our own filter on Scripture, but we believe that the position that Calvin argues for That not because it makes the most logical sense to us as human beings, but because we believe this is how God reveals himself to us in his word. And ultimately, that's what we want and what we desire. Well, you can make your way to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, chapter 40, is where we're going to start. And as you turn there, I'm just going to flash up on the screen here, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. And this is what it says. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So on the outset here, we see that God not only knows all things, but works out, that is, he provides the plan for how all things are to come about. And as you start there, we're going to look here in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is a prophet who is all about expanding our vision of God. He's saying, your vision of God is far too small. And he spends a lot of time between Isaiah 40 through 48 comparing and contrasting the true God versus the God of idols, ones that are made by human hands. And one of his biggest arguments that he's going to lay out is the reason that God is God is because he knows the future. He knows the future and brings the future about. That's one of the main arguments of Isaiah 40 through 48 is that God knows the future and he brings it about. Let's look at Isaiah 40 verse 26. Isaiah 40 verse 26 says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Now, this is Isaiah 40. Everybody loves that psalm, Behold Our God, right? It's a Sailorville favorite. It's taken from this passage, a lot of it. And Isaiah starts out by saying this, and this doesn't have to do with sovereignty, but I just want us to expand our view of God a little bit more. That he has created all the hosts, that is the stars, and he knows them all by name. Now, this isn't for me, but it's really cool, okay? So there are three septillion stars in our, in our universe. That's three with 24 zeros behind it. Now, if you're like me, numbers in the billions and the trillions, they all start, all start to sound the same after a little while, don't they? So let's talk about them more in the, the time, uh, or more in relation to seconds to help us expand this view of God. Okay, Greer says, where, do you know how long one million seconds ago was from this moment? 11 days was one million seconds ago. Do you remember what you're doing a million seconds ago? Just 11 days ago? You might not. God does. How about one billion seconds ago? Do you know how long ago that was? 32 years ago. The 80s were around. The CD had just been released. Rambo had saved the world and the Jedi's had just returned for the very first time. (laughs) 
over a billion seconds ago. How about one trillion seconds ago? A couple thousand years, perhaps? Try 29 BC. A, tri- a trillion seconds ago. God created over a septillion stars with a word of his power in an instant, and he knows them all by name. You struggle with remembering the names of the people in your cell group. (laughs) Yeah, God knows all the stars by name. Expand your vision of God. Our God is too small in our minds. But he is not in reality, and he's not in the scriptures. Look at chapter 42, verses 8 and 9. I am the Lord. This is my name. My glory I will give no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So God says, listen, you are giving your glory to idols, But they don't know all things in the past, nor do they know all things in the future. Listen, I am going to tell you what is going to happen. And you see that throughout all the scriptures, right? You see Cyrus. God talks about this Persian king that would rise up some 400 years before it even happened. And it came to be. Calls the guy by name. Wasn't even born yet. He says, listen, I know everything. Look at chapter 44, verses 7 and 8. He says, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. I have told you from old, and I declared it. And you are my witness. Is there a God besides me? No, there is no rock. I know not any. 45, verse 7. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all things. So he says here, I bring about good and I also allow evil to happen according to my plan. Bruce Ware says this, to remove God from his control of both good and evil is to remove him from being God. So it's not just a matter of saying, well, I don't know if I believe that. It's saying you're not going to believe that God is God if you remove those things from him. Now, the last verses we're going to look at in chapter 46, verses 9 through 11, these are the mic drop verses, okay? These are the ones that are cited that provides God's sovereignty and his provision through all of it. Look at chapter 46, verses 9 through 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there was none like me. Listen to this, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes, calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I will do it. 
So God says, not, I, not only am I declaring these things to be, but I am going to accomplish them. I am going to bring them about. I have spoken. I'm going to do it. From the small, from finding food for birds, I'm going to take care of that. From the big, from the plans of men, I have plans and I'm going to accomplish them and bring them about. So what makes God God is that he knows the future and he brings it about. Now Jesus actually used this same apologetic when he's speaking to his disciples. He says, listen, I'm telling you these things in Matthew 11. He says, or John chapter 13, I'm sorry. I'm telling you these things about the future so that when they take place, you'll believe that I am God. That when these take place, you will believe that I am he. So Jesus says, listen, if you're doubting my deity, take this into account. Just like God says in Isaiah, shows his his deity through knowing the future. Well, look, I know the future too because I am God himself. Now listen to this. God not only knows all things that have happened and will happen, He knows all things that could happen in any given scenario that won't happen. Check out Matthew 11, 21 to 23. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for it is a mighty work. If the mighty works have been done, you you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sodom than Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, you will be exalted to heaven. You will be brought down to Hades. For in the mighty works done in you, if they had been done in Sodom, it would remain until this day. Now, this is what theologians call middle knowledge. That is that God knows if scenarios were different, what would have happened in that scenario. So God says, listen, if, if these cities, Sodom, that was destroyed... If they would have had the same message that you would have had, they would have repented and they would still be around today. So he knows all the what ifs of every single life, of your your life and everything that's happening, of every scenario. Have you ever wondered what would have happened if you would have taken that job in Kansas City or wherever? Have you ever played those things over in your mind if you would have gone to a different college or if you would have chosen a different career path. God knows. He knows every variable of what would have happened. Big down to the small. He knows every situation. What happened because you took that wrong turn. And what would have happened if you wouldn't have taken that wrong turn. He knows why you were five minutes late and what route you should have taken. So you wouldn't have been five minutes late. He knows that you shouldn't have stopped at Starbucks because you would have been five minutes late, and you probably know that too, but you did it anyway, right? <laughs> he knows what could have been if you had chose differently, but what could never be because, he did it because you didn't choose it, and it was never ordained by him. So what's the point? So that you can dwell on your past and think about how things could have been different. No. God has sovereignly ordained the exact plan that you are living right now, using the exact choices that you've made throughout your life. But instead of dwelling on them, you think about God and how vast and how big he is in his exhaustive knowledge. So if God knows everything and ordains everything, 
do you and I really have true freedom? Let's pray. No, we're going to actually discuss that. (laughs) Do my choices really matter? Am I responsible for my choices if God is all sovereign and has a plan for my life? Well, I'm going to read to us Acts 2, verse 23. Acts 2, verse 23. Is that right? Yeah, there it is. Peter talking here, now filled with the Holy Spirit, his first message ever. He says, this Jesus, he's talking to the Jews, delivered up according to the definite plan of God and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Okay, so look at this verse. Let's keep that up there if you would for us, Tanner. We see the definite plan of God. So Jesus was crucified, not because of plan B, but it's always been God's plan that, God would be, that Jesus would be crucified. He is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, okay? That is always God's definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. He planned it and he knew it was going to happen. But then look at the second part of the verse. Who you crucified, you killed by the hands of lawless Men. So we see God's plan, but yet men are the ones who carried it out. So was it man or was it God that crucified Jesus? Yes. These two are meshed together so that God's plan comes about, but men are still responsible. You are not, you and I are not off the hook for the choices that we make in our lives. Now, how do we make sense of this? This was God's plan. Did God make them do it? No. He he didn't make them do it, but worked his plan, his sovereign plan, through their choice. Now, Arminians teach that true freedom is only libertarian freedom. And that is that if you come to a choice in your life, Only true freedom comes if you can choose between one thing that you choose and you just as easily could have chose something else. So I was at Hy-Vee the other day and Mike and Ike's were on sale 10 for 10. And so were hot tamales. Same exact price, had a decision to make. I didn't want to buy both of them because that would be over the top. So I just chose one and I picked the hot tamales. Now I chose one, not the other. But could I have chosen the Mike and Ikes instead? That's what Arminians say, that that is the only way that true freedom can exist. But if you think about it, that's not really how freedom works. We always choose according to our nature. We always choose according to our nature. You just met Andrew Bush a little bit ago. He's very wise and loves a man named Artazerdia who uses this illustration. If you give a horse the option between a perfectly cooked steak and a bag of oats, which one would you choose? Maybe some of you who are vegetarians had obviously the bag of oats. But the majority of you would say that perfectly cooked steak, well, what is that horse going to choose every single time? He's going to choose that bag of oats. Why? Because he's a horse. 
and he's choosing according to his nature. You see, we always choose in any moment what our heart's greatest desire is. And this type of freedom is called freedom of inclination. Now, this is put out by a, probably one of the smartest minds to ever live in North America, in the United States, Jonathan Edwards. And he used his great mind and he, he applied his heart to God and to his glory and was one of the greatest Christian teachers that we have. And he calls this freedom that he believed the Bible teaches freedom of inclination. That is all of our choices in any moment come from our heart. So we have the freedom to choose what our heart is most inclined to do in every situation. Luke 6 verse 45 says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what comes out of your mouth? What's already in your heart. So here's what this means. God knows every intention of our hearts before we ever act on them. God doesn't make us do anything outside of our nature to bring about his plan. He uses the choices that he knows we're going to make. He brings us to a situation. We are making a choice, but it's not a choice of this or that. So he's not sure which one, but the one that he knows we're going to make based upon what we want the most in that moment. Take the hot tamale, for example. I would much rather have Mike and Ike's. Do you know why I chose the hot tamales? Because I knew that the hot tamales were hot and my kids wouldn't want to eat them. So I chose the hot tamales over the Mike and Ikes in that moment because of my selfish heart. Because I knew I wasn't going to have to share them. They might have one and then realize how hot they are. I had freedom to choose because my heart, that's what it desired the most in that moment. You see, before you came to know Christ, you have an old nature. And it's captive to the old nature. You don't have the ability to choose to do right and if you do, it's for the wrong reason. But when you come to know Christ, he gives you a new nature. And now you have the ability, not in every situation, but to have a heart that loves God, that's changed by him, to choose according to your new nature. So this means that your choices do matter. That you can't screw up enough that God is not in control. So you're making choices within God's sovereignty and he's using your desires to bring about his plan in your life. Well, let's talk about this just in, by way of, of some in-home application. Let's imagine this as far as leading in the home, leading your spouse as a man, leading your children, training them up in the way they should go. Now, we can think if God is sovereign, then I can be passive in my leading, passive in my parenting, because I'm really not responsible for how I raise my kids. God is. Well, look at 1 Samuel 3, verse 13. Is that the right? Yeah. And I declared to him that I'm about to punish his house forever. Now, God is talking about Eli here. 
And he says, for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. So God doesn't say, well, in my sovereignty, that's what was going to happen. Now, was it his sovereignty? Yes. But is Eli left off the hook for his choice? No. So you and I, we are responsible for the way that our kids turn out by the way that we raise them. Now, if they turn out godly, what do we say? Well, it's because I'm such a godly parent. No, if they turn out godly, it's because we know that there's a sovereign God and it's by his grace. And sometimes if we really screw up and we're a terrible parent, somehow they turn, still turn up godly. But either way, God holds us responsible for how we raise kids, but it's all by his grace at the same time. Now, growth in Christ, how about that? How does that all work out? Christ works and you work. Look, this is sanctification. This is not talking about salvation. But look at Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've also obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now catch this. So it's you working out the aspects, working hard to be godly. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we see that it is God working in our lives and we are working along making godly choices to grow in Christ, but he's providing the energy, the desire to do so. Now, how about sharing your faith? How about if you're, you're sharing your faith, you're uh, sharing the gospel with somebody? Now, are you responsible and are you called to share the gospel? This is yes. Everybody do this right now, okay? Matthew 28, we don't have to go there, but that's, that's one of the things you're called to do. Not just pastors, not just uh, people who are inclined to it. Everyone is called to share the gospel. But God is sovereign. So how does that work? Right? Acts 13, 48, this is what it says. And when the Gentiles heard this, that is the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Now catch this. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now don't you just love this verse here? Because it doesn't say that you're off the hook because God is sovereign and has chosen people for salvation. It doesn't say that at all. It says, in fact, you are called to share the gospel but God is ultimately appointing those who you're sharing with to eternal life. Do you see this awesome tension as man is doing his responsibility and God is bringing about his sovereign plan? Now you can go and say, okay, if someone is elect, they're going to get saved anyway. True. Man, but don't you want to be involved in it? Don't you want to be one of those that is working to bring about God's plan? He's going to do it anyway. It's just a matter if you want to join him in what he's doing. Now, Nehemiah 4, verse 9, is a wonderful verse as it relates to meshing God's sovereignty and our responsibility. They had some opposition in building the wall in Nehemiah. Look at what they did. And we prayed to our God, and set a guard as protection against them day and night. Okay? So you got trusting God's sovereignty in prayer, and then you also have human responsibility of putting someone else on guard to watch and make sure that everyone is kept safe. 
So God is saying, listen, just saying God is going to keep me safe. He says, you need to take precautions to do that. You You probably should lock your doors at night. All right. That's not trusting sovereignty. That's being dumb. He says, listen, lock your doors. If you want to have some kind of protection within the home, great. Whether that's a gun or a Louisville slugger, whatever you want to use. And sometimes it's just calling 911. Or trusting God and saying, that's a matter of conscience to me and I'm not going to do that. But God isn't saying, listen, you're going to be working and you're not off the hook. This is part of your responsibility at the same time along with my sovereignty. Now, I hope at some point in the fall to be able to do some more modules on this uh, and get into things like uh, some things that have crept up in the last 15 years of of open theism and things like that. But I'm not going to be able to get into that tonight, but I would love to talk with you further about it and uh, talk about some of the implications and some of the the, uh, contemporary theologies that are coming at us today in regards to God's sovereignty. But let's just close up tonight by looking at suffering. How does... God's sovereignty relate to my trials, my sufferings in God's sovereign plan. Bruce Ware says this, we should never feel good about suffering as if that is godliness. If you have this sense of, I should always feel good, and, and I, when it says count it all joy, that means that I have to be really happy that I had to suffer. No, that's not godliness. What we should do, though, and count it all joy, is to feel good about God in the midst of our suffering, seeing that it is all part of his plan. See, people who don't believe in God's sovereignty, that he doesn't know the future, he doesn't have a plan, say that suffering just comes, and that's just part of life. God's going to walk through it with you, but he's just surprised by suffering as you are. But God says, no, I have brought suffering. I've allowed suffering into your life. And in the midst of that evil that's in your life, I am working for good, for your good, and for my glory. That's why Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, a familiar verse to many of you says, as for you, Joseph speaking here to the brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that my people should be kept alive as they are today. So not only was it God's plan that the people of Israel were to be kept alive and sustained, but it was also good in Joseph's life at the same time. Something that meant evil against him, God was bringing about good. That's why Romans 8, we cling to that verse, verse 28. God works all things together for good to those who loved him, to those who have been called according to his purpose. Charles Spurgeon says, the sovereignty of God in trial is a pillow on which, we rest your, on which we rest our heads. So in the midst of hardship, we trust that God is working, that he is sovereign, that he is in control. Do you remember Job? Right? Quite possibly one of the worst suffering that anyone has ever endured. At the end of Job, have you ever noticed when he starts to question God, what is God's response? One of his responses, C.J. Mahaney, is in the midst of all Job's tragedy and questioning, God takes him to the zoo. An interesting place to go, isn't it? He says one of the things, consider the ostrich. Okay, God, I'm really struggling here. Why are you talking about an ostrich right now? 
But have you ever seen an ostrich? I'm sure you have, right? Maybe you've seen a picture, you've been to the zoo yourself, you know what an ostrich looks like. But have you, have you ever been scared by an ostrich? I have a fear of birds and I feel like the ostrich is the most frightening bird there is. It can't fly, they're ugly, I can't comprehend them and why they exist. They seemingly have no purpose. And God is saying to Job, why do you think that you can comprehend? If you can't comprehend the finite, why do you think you can understand the infinite? That's what Greer says. He says, if you, can under, if you can't explain the natural things of this world, how do you ever think that you are going to be able to understand my ways and what I am doing behind the scenes? Job had no idea what was going on behind the scenes. We do, and God is calling him and saying, listen, trust me. There's so much more going on behind the scenes than you would ever imagine. Alex Tuckness, professor at Iowa State, elder at Cornerstone and Ames, gives this illustration. God calls us to have faith like a child. Now, children are not stupid, but they are growing in knowledge. There's a big difference between a four-year-old, I have almost a four-year-old, and an adult. There's a huge difference in knowledge and capacity between those two. You see, children have enough knowledge to ask questions, but they don't have enough understanding to comprehend the answer. If a child comes to you and says, how does that light switch work? and you explain to them how a light switch works with electricity and everything else that's going on, what's their response gonna be? <laughs> right? It just says, well, you flip it on and the lights come on. That's how you talk to a kid, right? So off, God has designed us with the capacity as human beings to question God's infinite ways, but not with the capacity to understand the answer. And so he is calling us to trust him. In comparison to God, we're not even a four-year-old. And he's saying, would you trust my ways? Don't try to figure everything out. He's not saying, don't test me, don't search the scriptures, but some things you're just not going to understand. And our tendency is to say, okay, then I'm gonna filter God and put him in terms that I can understand how I want to see him in a way that makes sense for me. That's when we need to remember, when we're perplexed, it's an opportunity to worship and be reminded that we are not God. His ways are not our ways and they are beyond finding out. We need to expand our vision of God. He is so complex, but you know what's amazing? Everything that we need to know is so very simple. The gospel can be explained and understood by a four-year-old. Everything that he's given to us is in the gospel and being right with him is so simple, we stumble over it. It can't be that easy. And a child can understand what it means to be right with God. This vast, what's, what's perplexing to me is that this vast creator would enter into time and space bring and offer salvation to those who had rejected him. That is beyond my comprehension. 
Thanks for coming out tonight. Your children will be ready in two minutes. You're dismissed.